Well, good evening and welcome, all of you. I'm Andrew Marr, and I'm here to introduce Richard Layard. And the way it's going to work is, broadly speaking, this. Richard is going to talk to all of us for 10 or 15 minutes, giving us the central thesis of this very interesting book, and I will then interrogate him about some obvious <coughs> flaws and problems <laughs> in it. <laughs> no, no, no. no. Uh, and then I will turn to you for your contribution. Uh, when that moment comes, if you could wait for the microphone to arrive and then identify yourself and, if necessary, your organisation, um, uh, I'd be grateful. The only other thing to say right at the beginning, of course, fire entrances you know about, I'm sure, to left and right, but really important. Um, we hope that this is going to be uh, all over Twitter in due course and you can tweet about it, but please, please, please turn off or onto silent mode your phones for the time being because we are trying to record this. We hope that it, the entire thing will be available as a podcast in due course, but if there's constant phone noise and so forth, that makes it much, much harder. So please turn off your phones or at least mute them. Thank you very much indeed. Now, after the lecture, I'm glad to say there will be drink, even though it's dry January, uh, where, you can, where you can meet Richard and talk to Richard and some of the other authors who are in the there. audience. If you could identify yourselves and put your hands up, because the questions were, they will take questions as well as Richard afterwards, if you have questions for them too. <laughs> and I'm sure that everybody will be more than delighted to sign copies of books that have been bought. Thank you very much indeed. <laughs> right, with no more ado, I'm going to ask you, Richard, to take us through the origins of happiness, a small and easy subject. This is a new piece of equipment that's arrived since I was last here. <laughs> Looks like something. Okay, kind of yeah. Andrew, thank you so much, uh, and thank you all uh, for coming. This is actually the fourth time that we've had a discussion about happiness uh, here, uh, and each time I'm happier um, because. <laughs> partly because it's so lovely being with Andrew, but partly because the worldwide happiness movement actually has been moving forward all this time. And we really like to think of this book as a, a, a contribution to that uh, great movement. Now, the title, if we can find it here. Oops. The title is not, of course, original. Uh, there was the uh, origin of species, which might itself have been based on the origins of inequality. I'm not sure. But both of those were written by a single author. This one has got five authors, and uh, the two uh, of my other important colleagues have identified themselves there, so um, lovely that they can be here. Let me tell you the aim of the book. The aim of the book is to alter the way in which policy is made uh, so that policy becomes aimed at the happiness of the people rather than whatever it's now aimed at, which is often very difficult to describe and often full of very com uh, contradictory and non-commensurable objectives. Of course, the idea of aiming at the happiness of the people is not uh, a new idea. It was the greatest idea of the 18th century, I think the greatest idea of the modern age, that you would judge a society by the happiness of the people. Uh, and that, of course, has the huge implications for, for public policy. Uh, so our book is in particular aimed at policy makers and trying to persuade them uh, that they should be uh, aiming uh, at uh, the happiness of the people and giving them uh, the information they need to do that. The, the, the statement of this philosophy that I like best 
uh, is from Thomas Jefferson. He said, the life and the happiness of the people is the sole legitimate objective of government. The life and happiness of the people is the sole legitimate objective of government. And I actually can't think of any other objective, that gov- any other reason for having government. Um, maybe some of you can. Provided, when we think of happiness, we're not just thinking of the total, but we're thinking of its distribution in particular, that we're aiming to reduce the number of people uh, who are uh, in misery. So if that's the objective, uh, you've got to have a lot of information uh, in order to, to, to aim at it. Um, and that's what the book's aiming to provide. Uh, and we want it to be, as I said, a sort of Bible for policymakers, um, not necessarily the whole of it. It'll take a long time to accumulate, but maybe the book of Genesis. So our aim is to show which factors are more important and which are less important in explaining the variation of happiness among the people. And, and this is nearly the same thing. We're trying to explain which factors best explain the prevalence of misery in our society. So the framework that we're thinking of is how people's happiness is influenced by everything that's happened to them over their lifetime. So we're interested in uh, explaining the thing on the right, the the life satisfaction of each adult. That's explained uh, importantly by what's happened to them recently, current adult life, but that in turn is explained in part by what happened to them in adolescence. That in turn is explained uh, in part by what happened to them in childhood, uh, including, of course, uh, their genes. So we're going to be using uh, these wonderful British surveys that follow people uh, for long periods of their lives. Um, But we also, in fact, I'm just going to give you results from the British data, but we also, in fact, looked at other rich countries, and it's remarkable how similar the results are uh, in different countries. So uh, how far do current circumstances explain the variation in life satisfaction? Huge variation, I I must say, in this room. I know it. (laughs) Well, those are the factors that we've looked at in particular, um, you'll see income is, is a factor, amongst, but it's one among many others. Um, and it's a total contribution to explaining the variance of life satisfaction in the population as a whole is 1% of life satisfaction in Britain is explained by the inequality of income. Uh, and I know of no country where that number is higher than 2%, even actually in poorer countries. So it's important but it's not all important. Uh, the factors which really matter are our human relationships, that's on our, as it were, the outsiders, uh, and our health on the inside of us. Human relationships everywhere, actually, family relationships are the most important. Uh, whether you have a partner is measured there, but other features of it, obviously, as to how well that partnership is going. Uh, then whether you have work, if you want it, how well that's going. Uh, what kind of community you live in, is it safe, congenial, uh, that's also important. But then there's the inside, uh, which has often been ignored too much, I think, including in some of the work on happiness, because it's not only our physical health that matters, it's our mental health, and our mental health is not the same uh, as life satisfaction. I'm sure Andrew's going to be quitting me on this. 
but we are using diagnosed mental illness um, as a measure of mental health. So you see that that is important. Now, if I asked you now to uh, think about my second question, if you, if you knew somebody uh, at the end of their adolescence and you wanted to predict whether they were going to have a satisfying life, what factor, uh, what feature of child development would you think would be the best predictor? Obviously, one is academic, one is behaviour, another is their emotional health. Uh, you know the answer by now, of course. Uh, it's their emotional health at 16 that is a better predictor of whether the person will be satisfied with their life years and years later than their qualifications, even if we measure the qualifications right up to the age of, of 30. So it then becomes, and this is my third question, important to explain uh, the emotional health of people at the age of 16 in terms of what happened before that. Um, and I think these are the results which most surprised us because the survey which we use, which is uh, from the study in Avon County, uh, has a, an amazing amount of information about the parents. Uh, it has their parenting style, their mental health, whether they're in conflict, their income, qualifications, housing, you name it. It's got all of that. And yet, all the information we have about the parents explains no more about whether the child is happy at 16 than simply which school they're in. This is absolutely extraordinary. So the top bar is the effect of the family background insofar as we observe it, and the bottom is the effect of which school they're in. Even more surprising, when, the, when you're looking at the child at 16, they're still profoundly influenced by which primary school they went to. So this is really, really, <laughs> really quite sensational because there's been such a tendency to say that schools, well, they can perhaps teach people maths, but they can't teach people to live. Well, they are in some way or other affecting whether these people are managing to find an enjoyable life. Um, what's, what's in fact remarkable is that uh, the school explains as much of the variation in the emotional health of the child as in the academic attainment of the child. That's even more extraordinary because people say schools are only about academic attainment. Even more extraordinary, if you look at an individual primary school teacher and the children who are in his or her class, you can follow through an effect of that teacher on the emotional health of a child at 16 and even on the job prospects of that child at 20. So this is a sort of manifesto for the, the ability of schools to affect the happiness of children, even if they're not thinking about it, but of course we want them to think about it uh, even more than they already do. So, so let's come on to... Uh, I don't know what this is doing, but <laughs> I assume it's happier upright. <laughs> um, so let's come on to the question of what this says for policy. So... Obviously, this information is telling us sort of which areas the scope uh, for policy to improve happiness. Um, it doesn't tell you the actual specific policies. To do that, of course, you have to do proper controlled trials. And what we next need in this subject, following on this book, <laughs> is thousands of controlled trials in the areas which this book uh, says are important. Uh, <coughs> 
and, and we have offered a, a, a method of cost-effectiveness analysis that should then be applied to it. So which are the areas? Well, uh, one is certainly income distribution because one of the key findings, not only of this book but other research, is that um, the relationship between uh, income and happiness is curvilinear. Uh, so, and here's the precise uh, nature of the curve, that um, a poor person would get ten times more extra happiness from a pound than somebody ten times richer than that person. So you see it's very curved, uh, which of course has always been the fundamental argument for redistribution, that money uh, is more used to poor people than it is to rich people. But I think that's an old argument. I think the new policies which are coming out of this research are are ones along this line. If you think, what has the state done? I mean, it didn't do much for individuals until about 1870. Then it decided it should turn them into good workers. And the state has made a huge effort to make people productive. But it's made a very minimal effort to enable them to uh, make the most uh, of their uh, personal relationships uh, and their personal uh, inner uh, satisfaction. And I think we will find uh, that that becomes more and more important uh, role of the state. So just to give a few examples, schools. Schools should have the happiness of children uh, as an equal goal with academic achievement. That is the situation in the Netherlands. That's how they're inspected. That's how it should be done here. NHS should give much more priority to mental health relative to physical health. Uh, We should be offering serious evidence-based support to couples who are in conflict. That's a proper role for the state. And to people who are lonely in old age, another proper role for the state, and so on. Uh, Notice that these are not very expensive things to do. I mean, they cost a hell of a lot less than HS2. So we, we should be cutting back on these materialistic forms of expenditure in favour of things which really matter to people, as revealed by this research. Uh, And finally, of course, as citizens, we can learn from this uh, what sorts of things we can do to make for a happier world. I do believe that we can have a happier society, and I believe strongly that that would be helped by more and more uh, understanding and research in this field. So uh, let me encourage uh, anybody here who's thinking of it to come and join the effort to understand the causes of happiness. Thank you. Richard, thank you very much for that. And can I just start off by saying that as a proud resident of the People's Republic of Primrose Hill, I'm (laughs) delighted that the happiness in gender involves abolishing HS2. Um, (laughs) So that's very good. Um, I I can well see what your kind of main target is in this in this project which is the kind of rather cheerless slightly witless um, attitude that is gdp growth wealth growth is the only way of measuring a successful society and you know we're all looking uh, nervously at each other wondering about how much stuff we're going to get next year we don't need it a lot of the time we don't want it but that is the only measure of social progress that we have available to us and it is self-evidently and ridiculously absurd And there's been a lot of work done on the limits of growth we can't have a society where growth is the only uh, economic growth is the only objective because economic growth cannot by definition go on forever so I completely see where you're going in all of this 
But I think like a lot of other people, I find it difficult to understand the nature of the methodology behind it. It's very, very specific. And in this book, again and again, you say, it is now clear that we have demonstrated <laughs> that, this, that, and we have uh, regression statistics and, and, and beta curves and all sorts of mathematical... These beta coefficients are partial correlation coefficients, it's, it's explained. And basically, as I understand it, this is, this is researchers asking people very general questions about their lives and perhaps, question mark, being a little bit credulous about the answers? Well, the question, uh, first question, how to measure happiness. Yeah. Um, obviously, in many ways, uh, the way that we uh, use is the, the way that has been most used and used for the longest period of time, which is the answer to the question, overall, how satisfied are you with your life these days? Not to 10, not extremely dissatisfied, uh, ten extremely satisfied. So, but for me, they say that would be a meaningless question. I, some days I wake up and I'm satisfied. <laughs> some days I'm deeply unhappy. Well, I've gone through periods, months at a time when I'm very unhappy uh, for various reasons, and sometimes I'm happy. But if I look back over my life, I'm not sure it's a minute for me anyway. It's a meaningful question. Well, uh, here, here are three reasons for thinking that there's a, a, a good deal of meaningful element in your reply. Okay. <laughs> One, uh, how you reply is quite well correlated with brain measurements that can be made in relevant areas of the brain. Uh, so if you take different people, you'll find a correlation across them between the brain waves and the answers. Take the same person and you take them through nice experiences and bad experiences over a long period of time and you can find uh, similar results. So that's encouraging. But much more important is the fact that these numbers are good predictors of all sorts of things. They predict whether you're going to live or not. Um, so happy people live longer. Happy people live... If you take the same people, the same group of people, uh, and follow them over nine years, having asked them how happy they are at the beginning of the nine years, uh, the uh, least happy third, 50% uh, more of them will be dead Everything else held constant, including a full medical diagnosis at the beginning, compared to the, the, the most happy third. Could that not be, for instance, because they're unhappy, because a member of the family has cancer, because they have got a, they've got a problem with cancer inside the family, and that's why they're going to die earlier as well? Or, you know, again and again, there could be other reasons for them being unhappy, which would then be a predictor of death, rather than the unhappiness themselves. There could itself. be, some, there could be some, some of that, but it's unlikely to be the whole of it. Um, and, and, of course, you can trace the physiological impact of happiness on the immune system and so on in a way that could well explain these mortality outcomes. Um, the other uh, obvious thing is that these answers must mean something if we can explain them in part. <laughs> I mean, if they were just random, you, couldn't, you, 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 you wouldn't get any of these explanations that I've been, been, been putting out. So, so, fundamentally, you trust people to know... Uh, where they are on a scale of 1 to 10, how happy they are. You trust that information. I came here um, en route. Um, I stopped off at the, um, the London Review of Books bookshop, which has a wonderful, wonderful supply of cake. And if you're interested in cake, the cake in the LRB bookshop is fantastic. So I went to have some cake, and there, were, there was a couple there, and uh, there was a woman, a young woman. I don't think they're here. I hope not. It was a young woman, and, a, and her bloke had an incredibly impressive kind of Whitechapel beard, if I can put it that. Great, big, glossy <laughs> beard. And she was glowing with happiness. 
and I overheard their conversation. She said, I hate everything about my life, she said, with a huge grin on her face. <laughs> and in a sense, that summed up my problem with some of the methodology. Can we really trust people when they say that how happy or unhappy they were? She was clearly brimming with good goodwill. Well, uh, 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 I'm sorry, I'm throwing uh, uh, anecdotes. No, no, I'm going to add to your scepticism because there's a famous experiment where an experimenter put a dime on a photocopying machine for some people before they were asked this question and not for others. And, of course, it showed up as having some effect. So uh, there's a lot... There's there's obviously some noise, as we we call it, in these answers, but there's also something which is really informative and really important and enables us to really get much more to the heart of what life is about. I mean, you know, if we really want to know what is making people tick, uh, there's no real alternative to asking them questions. We haven't reached the point where it can be done biologically. So if you want to know what, what makes people tick, you'd better ask them questions and you'd better take the answers very seriously. And I'm looking at David Clark here, with whom we wrote the previous book. <laughs> and, and I think it's true, David, isn't it, that um, 30 years ago, there was a lot of argument about how to measure depression. But it's more or less gone away. I and mean, people just got used to doing it in a certain way, and it, it gives them a lot of information. Not, not, it's not perfect. And I think that... Maybe we can improve these measures, but certainly the measures we already have are telling us uh, a lot more than we would have known just by reading novels. I mean, what's your alternative? Well, indeed, but um, (laughs) I guess my alternative is to to be slightly less specific about the numbers, Mm -hmm. Um, a little bit bit more novelistic about the conclusions, maybe. Um, But can I move on to... I mean, I think one of the other quite controversial things this book says is that it, we rather overrate economics and economic answers to, all of, to, to happiness. Um, there's been a lot of work on the effect of higher incomes on people. And I think it's quite well understood now that simply having a higher income doesn't necessarily make you proportionately happier. What makes you happier is where you stand relative to other people. So it's highly competitive. We're a highly competitive creature. We look around us and we look at our compeers... Uh, uh, incomes and wealth, and if we're doing a little bit better than them, then we're happier. If we're doing less well, then we're less happy. So although income may not be an issue itself, equality does seem to be very important when it comes to measuring happiness. One of your critics has said the trouble is with this book is that you're letting austerity off the hook, was the phrase used. Well, uh, let's take take your first point. Um, Certainly, um, people are very much affected by the incomes of other people. Mm. That affects what you feel you need. And that is a feature that is very deep in this book. I didn't have time to talk about it. Um, But uh, what appears to be the case is that actually what people care about is almost entirely their income relative to other people. And that in rich countries like ours, the absolute level of income doesn't matter. Uh, being because it's entirely a relative income uh, effect, uh, which, of course, has very huge policy implications because it's impossible to improve the relative income of a whole population relative to itself. Indeed. Um, and that's, that's you know, a, a further argument against giving undue weight to income on top of the one that I already gave. But I didn't quite understand your later part when you then went over to saying 
that if it's relative income, uh, we should give it more attention than I was giving it. I was, I was, I was showing you the effect of relative income in there. I, I think the critics of the, these, this particular group of critics are concerned that by focusing very much on, as it were, internal issues, mm. um, things that might be treated with cognitive behavioural therapy or family therapy and so forth, you're in danger of underestimating the importance of uh, flatter incomes, less inequality in society as a kind of fundamental um, aspect of happiness. Well, I'm not trying to focus on any, anything more than anything else. I'm just trying to look at how, how it is out there. And income actually is pretty well measured compared with most of these other things. Sure. Um, and it's, uh, it's, it's not turning out to be that important. But as I said uh, at the end of my remarks, it, the effect of income is very much higher when you're poor mm. than when you're, when you're rich, which is a profound argument in favour of redistribution. I mean, even if this is not the, the whole story about life, this income inequality story, it's still, there's still powerful arguments for getting rid of it. Indeed, because you, or reducing you, it. you might argue that if inequality between people causes unhappiness, um, but also that ever more material wealth doesn't make you a lot happier, Having, being able to buy three Mercedes rather than two Mercedes makes you no happier at all. Mm. then that is quite a strong argument for higher wealth taxes or higher income taxes. Absolutely. Yeah. No, that's sure. Okay, so, so they'll be pleased. Your critics will be pleased with that. <laughs> um, another thing that's not mentioned in this book, and again, a lot of people talk about this, is religion. It appears nowhere in the book at all. Mm. And there is quite a body of work which says that um, across the world, uh, religious people tend to be happier than non-religious people. And certainly the idea that if you have an ideology or a belief system of some kind which explains the world to you and your place in the world and starts to try to explain the notions of life and death in particular, then you are likelier to be happier. Make some kind of sense, but you, you haven't addressed this particularly in the book. Well, the, the, the psychologist who, who, in a sense, invented the psychology of happiness um, because he discovered that uh, his supervisor would not supervise him if he used the word happiness, so he used the word subjective well-being, and, and that's how he created this subject. Is Edward Diener. Now, Edward Diener has written a very good survey of the current state of thought about religion and happiness, and it, it goes roughly like this, that in, in poor countries, particularly ones that are subject uh, to all kinds of adversity, uh, religion is uh, acting for those who, who have it, which is often a large proportion, but variable across countries, mm. is acting as a buffer. It used to be said that that was similarly true in rich countries, but he finds that now it's less and less true in rich countries. But I would add the following thing. You're quite right that to have a sense of meaning in your life and purpose is an incredibly important element in happiness. But I think we are bit by bit finding other sources of meaning from the ones which came from religion in the past. And, well, Does uh, we, we, we have our movement. <laughs> Here's Mark, who is the director of Action for Happiness. I mean, this is a movement of people who are trying to get meaning in their lives from trying to create a happier world. People get meaning from all sorts of things, from their family and, and, and so on. But uh, I, I think that to have some organised system... Um, of, of thought and, and, and often of practice uh, that gives meaning to your life, that is pretty, a pretty important element in the happy life. 
I'm a very selfless kind of person, so I want you to try to imagine <laughs> me being Theresa May. I'm now Theresa May. Oh, my God. And, <laughs> and, and nothing has changed, and nothing has changed. <coughs> However, um, you started to tell me a little bit about what I should be doing as Prime Minister. If I read this book, and I'm completely convinced by it, and certainly we know that Theresa May is genuinely very interested in issues about, around mental health, We've even heard from Jeremy Hunt that they're going to put a bit more money in the National Health Service into mental health and so forth. But what, going beyond that, what, is, what are the kind of policy agendas I should now be following? Well, I think that uh, schools are very important and something really un unhealthy is happening in our schools, as you know. Uh, I mean, some are, are very good and deal with the whole person, but uh, the pressures on them to become increasingly exam factories is really horrific. Not, not even good for their cognitive functioning yeah. <laughs> to think that exams are the main purpose of learning. That's terrible. But it's even more terrible um, in pushing down in the concerns of the teaching force the development of the personalities and characters and um, pro-social impulses uh, of the children. So uh, I think it's absolutely essential that we get better goals uh, for schools that they are inspected uh, on not only the happiness of the children but the values uh, values of the children and that we have and this is something that some of us I don't know if there's anybody here who's involved in these things but some of us are involved in trying to develop really um, professional evidence-based teaching of life skills with properly trained teachers in schools. And what about, if she said to you, why don't I, I simply ban all social media from schools? Because you know, when all kids <coughs> yep. are highly competitive. These days, children spend so much time looking on social media at other kids who are having a better time. They're invited to parties that Child X wasn't invited to. They're thinner than Child X. They're richer than Child X. They've gone on the skiing holiday that Child X hasn't gone, and so on. And I, it certainly seems to me, uh, looking at my kids' experience, that social media has made the experience of childhood considerably and possibly even measurably less happy. I, I think that's true. Uh, there's, a, there's a wonderful book called iGen by Jean Twenge. <laughs> Basically it consists of diagrams that look like this. So the first diagram is the use of social media shooting up from 2010. Yeah. The next is depression among young people. Exactly. Next is anxiety among young people. Next is how many children feel left out, yeah. etc. Yeah. So... Yes, but I'm not sure that I know uh, exactly um, what, um, what, how this should be handled. I can tell you that in the program called Healthy Minds, um, which uh, we uh, are involved in in 26 schools, there's a whole section on, on how, you, how, you, how you respond to social media and to the images that are thrown at you from the other mm. media, other than social media. Um, it's a, I mean, you know, schools used to teach their children how to keep out of temptation. Mm. Absolutely <laughs> and, no temptation. And this, this is a part of the, the, the learning, how to avoid temptation. Absolutely. So you've all very kindly switched off your mobile phones when you came in. If on the way out you'd smash them, we'd be, you'd all be much, much happier. I'd be very grateful. Thank you so much. I've probably burbled on for long enough, so maybe we can take questions from around the hall. We've got plenty of time. So, lady here, to start with. Could just, wait, just wait for the... Sorry, if you can wait for the microphone, that would help everybody. Thank you. 
Hello, um, I'm a, a disability activist. I'm involved with the Mental Health Resistance Network and Disabled People Against Cuts. Um, and my, my own particular interest is in mental health. Um, I'm a, a long-term survivor of mental distress. Um, I, think, um, I think when I'm listening to you talking about happiness, the one group of people that are constantly being excluded are those in the margins of society. And when you talk about absolute poverty, I think someone lying in the streets tonight whose benefits have been sanctioned is in absolute poverty. They're entirely dependent on people chucking 50p at them or whatever um, to stay alive. Um, but uh, it's a, an appalling state of affairs that people with disabilities are now on, on the margins of British society. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, and I, I'm, I, I, I am totally opposed to the cuts. I voted against them. Yes, I know, but you, you have to bear in mind now that, that, that CBT is being used as a means of... Um, it, it's, it's being used as a means of pushing people who are not really well enough to work into work. People with severe mental health problems are being given CBT. There is no other kind of talking treatment available on the NHS now. Only CBT and only drugs... Um, people with very long-term, severe and enduring mental health problems, such as myself, are being discharged from secondary care, sometimes after 25 or 30 years, because we're being told that there's only get-you-back-to-work treatment available, and for people like me, it's goodbye, there's nothing. Okay, do you, do you um, have a question for Professor Leia? Question? <laughs> sorry, sorry. Well, it, it's, it's a difficult one, because there's so many questions, because, as you know, disabled one people are do. in a predicament. <laughs> the, 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 the point is, what can we do to bring this hell, this misery of disabled people to an end? Well, that's a big question, isn't it? Um, but, but as you say, the first thing is to give them a decent uh, income, make it easy rather than difficult uh, to get that income. Um, then, of course, there's a whole range of services which we need to have better provided according to the disability in question. In the end, there's going to be an answer to that, but it's going to be a political answer, probably not through a book like this or a movement like this. It's going to have to come through the ballot box and through taxation and so forth. There's a gentleman there with his hand up. Uh, come, to you, come to you next. Sorry. I'm not doing very good on David Dimbleby. Hello. Thank you. You, you, may, you may have to... Nigel Davis, a uh, member of the public. Have you found any link between happiness and regulation... There seems to be a trend of ever-increasing surveillance and interfering, possibly, by the state that right. may have an effect. So the question is, the, the, the surveillance state, more, intervention, more interference yeah. by the state in people's lives, more surveillance of people, has that got an effect on happiness? Is that right? um, yes. I mean, when I wrote my first book on happiness, one of the book reviews was headed The Happiness Police. And, and so uh, it, it was the idea that if you are trying to find out how to create the conditions for happiness. This will lead to more and more interference. Is that what basically the issue you're raising? Uh, that, of course, uh, is, is uh, exactly the opposite of what uh, happiness research shows, because happiness research shows that these kinds of um, surveillance states, especially the former communist states, when they were communist, were the least happy states which have ever been studied by uh, happiness researchers and of course they're all now getting a lot happier as, as they've stopped being surveillance states so I don't think that's a problem 
But it's interesting that the, the former Soviet Union, which had, of course, no religion or no official religion, was very, very unhappy. And then they were offered the nirvana of fantastic capitalist excess of all kinds. There's going to be material, uh, uh, vast amounts of material wealth. And that didn't happen because robber barons stole it. <laughs> and they are now, again, the unhappiest society, more or less, in the world. But they're coming up extraordinarily fast. Coming up Some very fast. Are they? Yeah. Are they? Yeah, yeah. There's, a, there's a chap here with a beard. Okay. <laughs> Uh, hi, uh, Robert Hauschel. Um, I've got a question about uh, Sorry, universal. Can you wave? Um, sorry, up here. Hi. Oh. Uh, universal basic in income. We're reading lots about it. I just wondered if you had any thoughts on that at all and its impact on happiness. Universal yeah, income. Yes, I mean, it's, it's been around a long time. I, I, I've, I've not been in favour of it um, because, I, I, and partly for ethical reasons, I, I, I can't see why, if somebody could contribute, uh, to the rest of society and earn a living and decide not to, why they sh should be financed by the rest of society. I, I've just never understood that argument. But um, the, the, the implications of that would be, of course, if you did that and, and, and some people chose that, um, that you, you would um, have to have uh, extraordinarily high tax rates to finance it, and I don't think anybody would actually in the end vote for them. And am I right, Richard, in saying that one of the things you, you say in this book is that while income isn't a very good uh, predictor of happiness, employability or employment is. Of course Working yeah, makes yeah, you happier. Yeah, sure. <coughs> uh, hi, I'm John Sharp. I'm a student here. Uh, I was just wondering if you think there's any truth to the old adage that ignorance is bliss and that perhaps knowing less makes you happier. <laughs> Andrew, you, you need to help me. Sorry. Um, ignorance is bliss. Does that make... Is that true? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I actually think one of the uh, insights of psychology is that um, you shouldn't want to know everything. There are a lot of things it's best not to know. Uh, and one of the things which really struck me, I, I didn't become an economist till my 30s. Uh, and uh, economists believe, or typically, or stereotype economists believe, as a matter of faith, the more information you have must be better. Um, but it's not like that. You don't want to know hurtful things. It's best to think about something different. <laughs> there was somebody up here who's got the microphone, I hope. Yes, hello. Hi, um, I'm Komal and I, I'm an LSE alum and I work at Goldman Sachs. Um, my question is around a formula for happiness. So I've seen a lot of people, you know, expecting things from relationships not working out or jobs or even their life plan. Could, what, what are your thoughts on a very simple equation that happiness equals reality minus expectations? That's very good. Reality equals experience minus... Exp reality minus expectation, is that right? Reality minus expectation. In other words, it's coming to terms with, with, with the, the, the realities of life. Sorry, are, are, you, are you saying, which is, is certainly it's correct... Goldman Sachs formula. <laughs> take, it, take it seriously. Uh, 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 I'm not sure if you're saying that your happiness depends on your, what your achievement is relative to your expectations. Is that what you're saying? Yes. Yes. Um, and, and if that was all, of course, the, the answer is very simple. Uh, just to reduce your expectations. 
<laughs> but uh, uh, that is not actually what would make you happy because we, we are... Um, we like challenges up to a point. The question is to choose the right amount of challenge. So I would say your happiness depends on your uh, achievement relative to your expectations positively, but also positively on your expectations relative to your capacities. You, you should form expectations which involve a reasonable amount of challenge, but I think what's gone wrong to a large extent in our society is that people feel that they should be trying to achieve something which is, is at the margin of what they can do. You hear this said all the time, and it's absolute rubbish that you should, you should be aiming at, at the, you know, the, the, the extremity of what you could yeah. possibly achieve. That is absolute rubbish, because the chances you'll fail are very high, and then you'll be really disappointed. Sounds like my editorship of The Independent, very strong. Um, the, the, the Goldman Sachs um, formulae provider said that it, a lot of this was to do with um, relationships and family. And I suppose one of the issues about this book is how much you have to get into the, the kind of intimate interstices of family life to, to solve a problem like unhappiness or happiness. No, I think you do. And I think that, um, I mean, obviously, whether family life can be made to work depends in part on your gen the general values that you hold and you know, how unselfish you are uh, and, and, and all of that. But and people can learn uh, a lot about emotional intelligence. Uh, I don't know how many of you read the book by Dan Goldman called Emotional Intelligence, which sort of was another of the, the early um, uh, um, treaties in this whole fair area. I thought it was very, very interesting. He's got pages and pages of you know, sensible things to do in, if, if you're getting a little tense with your partner. You know, when do you t tell them what you, you want to tell them? And so, I mean, there's a huge amount of learning to be done uh, to make relationships work. And I'd, I don't... I think, actually, everybody can learn some of this by reading and by sensible courses. Um, very interesting, I think. Uh, we, we might well do what they do in some places, which is to offer people um, around the time of the birth of the first child uh, a course in how that will impact on your relationship with your partner. Certainly uh, and and, and what they find is that normally after the birth of the first child, the relationship with the partner, the, the, what they call satisfaction with the relationship, deteriorates. And you can just stop that happening by uh, having this, taking this particular course. These things can be, can be, taught, can be, be learned. It's, it's not that, that, that you're taught ex cathedra, but you're taught by discussing it and ar arriving at a feeling of as to how you have to situate your, your mind uh, in the situations which arise. Right, I think there's a gentleman with a red <laughs> lanyard, not a red layard, but a red <laughs> lanyard. Uh, I've been called that before. <laughs> <laughs> in the army. <laughs> you, Lanyard. <laughs> Hello, I'm Joe Ware. And Can you I wave? Work, I work at uh, Christian Aid, the charity. Um, we've heard a lot from the government in recent weeks about the environment and their launch of their uh, environment plan. Um, despite being a, a city boy myself, I often feel much joy when I'm uh, in nature, and I just wondered whether uh, anything in your research had uh, 
shown a correlation between uh, happiness, well-being and the environment. Yes, there's a lot of, a lot of evidence on that. Um, there's a very clever app that you can take on your iPhone um, called Mappiness. Uh, uh, <laughs> and it, uh, it beeps you during the day at different times and you have to say immediately how happy you are. And then you have to take a photograph of where you are. And uh, it's been shown that, yes, on average, the same person is happier when they're in, in a green spot than when they're, they're, they're anywhere else. I mean, I, 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 I wouldn't say this is 100%, because, of course, there, there's a lot of other differences between being in a green spot and not, not in well, a green spot. Like, you're probably not working and things like that. <laughs> but it's, it's very, I, I did a series on megacities ages ago and went around the world looking at different megacities and where people were living. And one of the best predictor by far from the air of where the rich were was the number of trees. Yes, the of richer course. the area, the more trees, the more green. It was as yeah, simple yeah. as that. Well, uh, people uh, get them, we've, we've got a colleague here. I don't know if he's here. Christian, are you here? There's, uh, oh. <laughs> Christian, in his PhD, um, has done this sort of mapping of where people live and uh, then tried to explain their happiness by everything else, hundreds of other things, plus how, how dear they were to, 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 greenery, the, the, the to greenery. And, it, it, of course, it comes out strongly. Very interesting. Holding Happy. income constant in this case. Of course. Yes. Hi, uh, good evening. My name is Elliot. I'm a student here. And I was quite intrigued by one of your first sentences when you presented you said one of the sole goals of the government is to provide happiness to its citizens. And it made me think of Tocqueville's concept of soft paternalism. Have you ever, it's just some kind of a dystopia where the government... Self what? Um, soft paternalism. Soft paternalism. When soft paternalism. When yes, yes, citizens yes. just get s so concentrated on their own happiness that they grow disenfranchised from society as a whole. And so it's quite a... Um, quite dangerous in general? Yeah, there, I, I can see that there could be a danger here of uh, a sort of movement focused on personal happiness takes people away from the empathy and the, the engagement in social movements to help other people and to help society generally. Is that fundamentally your point? Yeah. Yes, but I think this comes back to the question of meaning and um, I think that it's very difficult to have any sense of meaning uh, which doesn't... Uh, involve you in trying to contribute to the well-being of some other people, uh, either society at large or your family or your uh, workmates or, or whatever. Um, so I, I, don't, I don't think that to say that, that happiness is how we should judge a society uh, is to say that we want people to be pursuing their own happiness. Not at all. We want them to be largely pursuing the happiness of other people, and partly, of course, because that's good for the other people, but partly because it's, a, it's one of the surest ways to raise your own happiness, to get out of yourself. Absolutely, absolutely. Another question here, and then a gentleman with a beard at the end. Good evening. Um, my name is Lola Jamibawan, and I'm an LSC alum who actually studied happiness um, as an undergrad. And I know, um, I understand the scope of this book is covering... Um, the rich countries. I was just wondering if you could uh, shed, shed some light on the um, representation those rich countries take. Are we limiting ourselves mainly to Western Europe, Western European offshoots? And if that's the case, how 
replicable or how applicable would this data be to the rest of the world? Yeah, well, I think we want to, we want to be a bit careful um, in, in, in applying it too widely. Um, there is this wonderful survey called the Gallup World Poll, which surveys a, a thousand people in every country every year, uh, including most of the factors that we've been talking about, including their happiness. Um, so we are working on that. And it certainly seems to be the case uh, that the effect of income uh, as an explanatory variable is higher in the poorer countries than the richer countries. Um, but um, I, I don't want to tell, say too much because we're still in, 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 in the middle of it. But you're quite right to raise this question that it, it, it doesn't necessarily apply in the form exactly that I've been saying. Just before we go on, can I just follow on from that and ask whether, as an economist, you are more or less in agreement with people like Kate Rayworth of, of Donut Economics, who argues that growth in itself, uh, endless economic GDP growth, is a chimera which is very, very dangerous for the Western countries? Well, I'm not sure that... I, <laughs> I'm not trying to satisfy anybody with, with my view on this. I mean, my view on this is, what is economic growth? on the whole, it's just doing things better. And, um, I mean, we do things better all the time. Um, and it's going to, go on, going to go on forever. We just find better ways of doing things. If it means an ever-growing population, all of whom want more middle-class stuff from a, a planet which is a limited amount of resources, now whether, then it can't yeah, go on forever. No, I mean, whether the things that we do better involve, you know, digging up more and more minerals... Um, that's that's a, se a separate question, but um, I, I, I would be surprised if the, the way in which, you know, barring, of course, climate change <laughs> or war, <laughs> devastating war, but I would, if we manage to maintain our, the present kind of society, I would be surprised if measured GDP statistics don't go on creeping up as long as anybody can look ahead. Another question here. But, uh, but I want to say, that doesn't mean to say that that's a hugely important phenomenon. Mm, it's, it's just something that happens. Human creativity leads us to do things better. Uh, and, you know, we're not happy unless we're doing things as b about as well yeah. as we think we could do them. There's no limit to uh, creativity, originality, ingenuity, mm. but there probably is to industrial GDP growth. Yes, yes, yeah, okay. Uh, my name is David Safir. I'm a former student of Lord Layard, um, <laughs> who taught me the economics of education and human capital many years ago, uh, and uh, is aging Welcome. far better than I am. Um, <laughs> uh, Professor Layard, if indeed uh, happiness is a function of our expectations, and if so, it surely depends then on who sets those expectations. And if that is the case, is it not also the case that policy should address that first? In other words, policies should be aimed at addressing those who influence the expectations of others and who are perhaps in a position and empowered to do so. Well, I'm not... I'm not all, this is almost a sort of policy for Big Brother, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, I, I know that... It, you know, governments all the time are over short periods of time trying to manage expectations. But I think the expectations of society are set by the whole processes of society more than by governments. Um, uh, certainly the media are creating huge uh, 
expectations, uh, making people feel what they should look like, um, what they should have, and uh, how many friends they should have, and all the rest of it. Um, and uh, you know, this is a, a process to which each, in, each individual has to respond, and they've got to learn wisdom um, uh, and respond to it without just absorbing it. They've got to notice, to notice what's going on. But we have become a society which, which, as it were, values really large amounts of personal wealth almost above everything else. Mm. And I always think of this word market, and a market is an absolutely essential human tool and always has been. But every kind of traditional village or town which had a market would also have a church and a mosque and a court and many other institutions. And it's as if the rest of society has been pushed aside and the market square has got bigger and bigger and bigger to the exclusion of everything else. And perhaps that is, the, that is one of the big drivers of unhappiness, that if you don't have the material success, you're not valued. Even if you may have a... Well, I, I, I mean, this is <laughs> going to lead me off. Because Be led I, off, I, go on. I mean, I, 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 since you, mes- you mentioned the mosque and the church, um, I do think there is a huge problem that there, there isn't a, a sort of countervailing force to the force of money. Yes. Uh, and um, money is seen as something which somebody gets by going for it. I mean, it's what you get. It's not, it's, it's not to do with what you give. It's, it's to do with what you get. Mm. I know rich people will say, yes, but I, 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 I got because I gave. Uh, but they didn't always give. Sometimes they just gambled or did all kinds of things. Um, so money is seen, but certainly by the people who don't have it, as something which that person got. And we need a society in which people are respected mainly by what they give rather than what they, what they get. And I, I, I wouldn't mind just plugging action for happiness, <laughs> uh, if I might. Um, I mean, this is a movement uh, of people who pledge to try to create more happiness in the world and less misery. That's to say that we're, we're trying to li- live our lives by, by giving rather than getting. Uh, and I think that you know, we need institutions. You see, the reason why we f- founded that movement was that You've got a lot of people, good people, Dalai Lama, many other people, saying how you should live. A movement for altruism. Yeah, so you've got a lot of individuals, Mm. eminent and wonderful people, saying how they think we should live. But there are really not no secular institutions that embody uh, that view that we can live well without churches and mosques and we've got to meet more regularly around the central issues of life in in some organizations like the action of happiness groups there was a movement i think for a sort of secular church movement as it were a church for non-believers but it didn't really take off no. so, so far as i know right there's a gentleman right in the middle here who's got got the microphone i think and then there's a chap right at the back here who's had his hand up for a long time so. uh, richard uh, david clark uh, chair of experimental psychology at oxford and we've worked together on mental health um, so a lot of the arguments in the book, Richard, are based on regression analyses of one sort or another. Um, and I think you were mentioning that you would hope there would be thousands of experiments that would be uh, generated from this book. Uh, and, of course, you say that because, really, the regressions don't get at causation in the way that experiments do. Um, and I just wonder, thinking to the second edition, um, 
What sort of conclusions do you think might be different when some of these things are tested experimentally? I'm going to ask you, Richard, to explain regression <laughs> analysis to, to those of us who are maybe not quite as up with it as you, and, 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 and then answer the question. Well, regression analysis means you, you, you take the thing that you're trying to explain and you try and uh, estimate as best you can the equation which explains that thing by all the factors that you think might be explaining it, which you also observe out there, like life, the first thing I put up, life satisfaction, is explained by income, employment, partnership, and so on. Um, but as David says, you know, we, can't exper- we haven't experimentally um, arranged for some people to have partners and some people not to have partners. Some people to have bad <laughs> partners or the wrong partners. Or, uh, I can see uh, there would be problems here, technically. Uh, 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 you, you know, and and it, it could be that uh, you know, happy people get partners rather than people become happy yeah. because of having partners. Yeah. So uh, to sort all those sort of things out... Uh, uh, is in, in, in just in the data drawn from nature uh, is, is something you can only partly do satisfactorily. Now, experimentally, even, that would be very difficult to sort out. You could, uh, you, but you could, you could, you could try and um, have uh, some population where you introduced... Um, well, you, here would be an interesting thing. Uh, so suppose that you know what some uh, some country banned mating agencies, uh, dating agencies. Did it? <laughs> <Basically>. <laughs> Bumble, Tinder, Grinder, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and some other country didn't. For example, that could be experiment. That's a natural experiment. Then you could see whether the quality of marriages improved. Uh, I think you could do well, it. Well, there was you, could a do, you could do it by county in this, in this country. Gloucestershire gets uh, Bumble or Tinder and, 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 and Warwickshire doesn't. <laughs> right. A lot of cross-boundary right, shapes. Right, right there's, a, there's a guy right at the back here who's got a question. Hi, yeah. Richard. At the top. Where, where are you? There. All right. Uh, I'm Adrian Bethian. I'm a primary school teacher. Um, so I was very pleased to hear that your research showed uh, the impact that primary school teachers can have on uh, pupils' well-being. Um, what I wanted to ask was, did your research reveal what it was that certain teachers did or didn't do that contributed to people's <laughs> well-being? Question. Well, it didn't reveal exactly what they did, but it, it, it is quite interesting what they did. They, they, they took these um, children uh, at the age of 10, measured their emotional well-being, and measured them again at the age of 11. And in between those two times they had had a particular teacher. Uh, and they, they then found out, by comparing the results of all the different teachers, how much e- each teacher contributed to their emotional well-being and also to their math scores. And then they used this, this uh, assessment of each teacher to try and predict both, actually, the emotional well-being and the future maths of the child at 16. And the emotional, the impact of the teacher on emotional well-being predicted the future well-being much better than the uh, the impact of the teacher on the maths at eleven predicted the achievement of the child in maths. Mm-hmm. Sixteen, so 
the, the, the effect of the teacher actually persists more on the emotional dimension of life than on the cognitive dimension. So keep them happy is the main answer. <laughs> I had a teacher in primary three, I can still remember her name, Miss McCallum. And in, it was a very, very traditional school with the belt, the tours, lots of rote learning, lots, it was very, very tough. And Miss McCallum failed to get the message, and she spent an entire year slowly reading us all the Narnia books, one after another, and they sacked her, and she completely saved my life. So that's, <laughs> that's the answer. There's a, a lady here who's got the microphone for her next question. Yes, Can you wave? Right. Uh, hello, my name is Sinead Peacock-Brennan. I'm a, a clinical psychologist. Um, you acknowledged the importance of redistribution when you were talking about policy and responding to income inequality. Um, however, the, the policy recommendations in the book tend to focus on individual change, whether it's therapy or resilience training for children. I was just wondering if you were to focus on policy recommendations in relation to wider inequalities like race, gender, um, what they might be instead. Um, what would happen if you, if you started to look specifically at inequalities around race and gender and presumably sexuality, those, those kind of, as it were, famous big inequalities in Western society? If that was more factored into the book, what would be the result? Um, and we didn't study those, partly, of course, because they're, they're, you can't change somebody's gender or their race or whatever. So we were, we were mainly studying the impact of things which we can change. But, of course, I completely understand the, the point that the attitudes which the society has to people by virtue of these characteristics uh, is important. But that wasn't something which we studied. But, of course, it's a very important issue. Right. Another question from... Hi, I'm Carly. I work for the Government Office for Science. Well, I was just wondering... Sorry, I'm here. Yeah. I was just wondering what proportion of people you think might just be naturally cup half empty and is happiness obtainable for everybody? My dad tries to con consistently convince me that he's just naturally a grumpy person and can't be happy, and I was wondering if you would agree with him. <laughs> I, I'm, well, with, I'm with your dad, certainly. <laughs> <laughs> well, when you say naturally, of course... Our, na our nature is, is the combination of our genes and our experience. Um, uh, so they work on us, and of course our experience works on us continuously throughout our lives. So you know, we don't have a completely set personality. Our personality varies just like our happiness varies. Um, but the rough edges have been knocked off. And some people... Uh, you know, have a, a, a gloomy personality uh, at times and less at other times, but uh, certainly people differ in that dimension. But I'm, uh, I, I don't think that um, people are unchanging. Their life satisfaction changes over time. If you, if you take a personality inventory, you know, the ocean five-factor um, personality inventory, that's not stable. That changes over time too. And, and yet, deep down, I mean, I've got this personal motto, which is temperament is fate. And I know <laughs> lots and lots of people who, um, you know, in, in many, many circumstances will be half empty um, and have a naturally, as it were, mildly sceptical or pessimistic take on the world. And, I mean, people I know, that doesn't yes. change very much. They, they can have good experiences and they can still be highly sceptical about yes. it. Yes. No, a, of course... <laughs> We're the same person, and we change somewhat, but not necessarily in all dimensions, I agree. 
Right, another question right at the back. I'm slightly worried. The more you talk, Richard, the more questions emerge. <laughs> could be here all night. Hi, uh, Jasmine Keery, and I'm a former student at LSE. Um, it's quite evident from your work that there's a strong correlation or um, between employability and the quality of the work and the purpose in your work. And I guess my question is what your thoughts are on the growth of AI um, replacing the workforce and what that means for the future of a human happiness movement if we are to continue to move towards a more idle society or a more idle workforce. Yes, I mean, uh, there have been uh, technological unemployment has been forecast um, forever. forever. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and it, it never happened. Um, because there, there, uh, there is actually a market which actually does uh, adjust um, so that most people uh, who want work uh, get it. I mean, it varies over the business cycle. But the, the really extraordinary thing, if you think about it, is that countries which have 3% uh, population growth have exactly the same employment rate as countries which have uh, no population growth at all. I mean, how, how, did they get, how, did, how did they get employed? There's a market mechanism that equilibrates um, the supply and demand of labour to a degree. I mean, there's always some, some unemployment and many factors. I've written a 600-page book on what determines the level of unemployment, but it's not... Um, determined in the mechanistic way that people are forecasting uh, for robots. Um, I mean, if a, a, we, don't know what, we don't know what the jobs of the future will be any more than people could have done, you know, when the, uh, the uh, uh, machine harvester was brought in or you know, the horses were displaced by motor cars or all the other people who were displaced. People get displaced all the time and new, new activities emerge. Another question at the back there and then one here. Hello. Um, at the beginning of the slides, you, saw, you showed the slides which were the correlation and the regression analysis and the effect sizes. I just wondered if any mediation or moderation analysis had been done to see where would be best to target first or where would be the most effect. Yes, we did look at that. We, we did look at that. Um, but um, I don't think it alters the, you know, the fundamental story, otherwise I would have, wouldn't have told the story the way I did. Right, but, but, uh, I can, if you contact me, I can show you passages where we discuss all those problems. We've got, we've got a question there, and then I'll take you, sir, after that. And you'll be the last question, because I have taken a, a personal decision that the, the collective happiness of the room would be best <laughs> met if we have two more questions and then have a drink. Very good. <laughs> <coughs> Hi. Um, Hi. So I, I'm, I'm Daniel. I'm the Community and Welfare Officer for the Student Union here. But I also, my dissertation was written last year inspired by your work. Uh, so thank you for your work. But also I'm really interested in the concept of happiness versus what we now know of well-being. Because well-being seems to be the topic which we have most of the research about and things like life satisfaction and uh, when you break things down, such as subjective well-being, into physical, mental, social aspects, they seem to be the things that we can quite and more sort of accurately measure. However, when we get to things like happiness, say when I stand on a beach, the reasons for my happiness, in my opinion, might, be, might differ. So from a policy step-down level, may it not be easier and more informative for policymakers to really focus on 
well-being as a correlation to happiness and, and really drilling down on things that we as physical humans who need to interact with one each other and can't just be so soul-serving, soul-focused. Is it not more sensible to have well-being as an indicator to happiness as opposed to just focusing on happiness? How did you understand that? Well, well, well-being is as a correlation or an alternative to happiness. Might is it not more, more reliable? Useful. Sorry, is, well, is well-being not more reliable to look at? More reliable because it involves clear physical uh, needs as well as internal. Is that right? Yeah. Well, 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 well-being can mean a lot, of, a lot of things, as you know. Yeah. You know, from cosmetics to <laughs> uh, more serious things, and and you know, some people have a whole dashboard of different well-being indicators, um, but for, from the, if you want to know our motivation for trying to go for a single measure of subjective well-being, yeah. and life satisfaction is the measure of subjective well-being, um, it is that I think we all feel that the, 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 the ultimate reality for us is how we feel. That is the ultimate reality, is how we feel. Do we feel good or do we not feel good? Um, and that, that's, 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 why, that's, that's the fundamental force behind this whole concept. We are trying to get away from uh, um, dashboards and so-called objective indicators of well-being to actually what difference do they really make to us. It's it is just a better word in many ways. Well, well perhaps the terminology of being well rather than happiness because people have a lot of interpretations of what happiness is to them but perhaps being well might be more clearly defined and less... Well, I, I, mean, I, I think it's a cop-out. Um, <laughs> we've, just, we've just been looking at the, the, uh, the, the last make of War and Peace. I mean, what, what is War and Peace about? It's about happiness, what makes people happy. And uh, they don't use well words like well-being, they use words like happy. So why can't we? <laughs> Final question, gentlemen. Thank you very much. Uh, my name is Petiu Bonnef and I'm an econometrician at the University of St. Gallen. And uh, uh, my question is the following. There is a lot of evidence in the neuropsychology that the brain produces its own happiness. It's called synth synthetic happiness. And, uh, and uh, that it might be, so these studies suggest that it might be something like a uh, stable personality trait, uh, which a view supported by the small uh, R-square in the happiness study. So a lot of unexplained variation. And if that is the case, why not focus on developing a pill for uh, improving our happiness and forget all about the economics and politics? And if there is such a pill, would you take it? <laughs> I didn't get it. Why shouldn't there be a pill for happiness? Oh, if yeah. there was one, would you take it? Well, <laughs> fun enough, we were discussing this this afternoon. Uh, my, <laughs> my, my answer is yes. People have always done exactly that. Uh, th they've drunk alcohol, they've, <laughs> they've drunk coffee, they've drunk tea. <laughs> uh, and if there's a pill with no side effects, uh, you bet it, they'll take it. <laughs> well, that is unfortunately not available in the atrium outside. However, <laughs> drinks are, alcohol is, and copies of the books which Richard is very kindly going to sign. 
Um, finally, it's part of LSE's Rag Week. The event stewards have got donation buckets at the exits, collecting change for Haven House Children's Hospice. This charity looks after children and young people aged from birth to 19 years old who have life-limiting or life-threatening conditions. So, if you're able to, please be generous. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you, Richard. Thank you. Thank you.